Do you know what it took for a group of Gentiles, thousands of miles in an ocean removed from Israel, to sing a song like that? Jesus is all I want or wish. I crave and thirst for Him. Those are the words of David, a man after God's own heart and an exception in the Old Testament church. And here we have a church singing it. That there's no treasure you desire on earth like the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not what our ancestors believed. The Lord has given us the true riches and He has drawn us to Himself. No man can come to me except the Father, Father which hath sent me draw him. Guess what that means about our church and you? The Lord has drawn us to Him. Let's give Him all that is due His glorious name. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And I do not want to spend long here because I want us to have extra time for singing so that you, in your hearts and with your voices, can lift up the Lord Jesus Christ before we come to the Lord's Supper. Daniel chapter 9. I'll read to you the explanation of the vision that Daniel had that uh, the angel Gabriel gave him. Daniel 9.24 Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined, shall be poured upon the desolate. Very briefly about some technical aspects of the prophecy, because I want verse 24 and the six things determined upon the Jews. This is a 70-week prophecy of 490 years. The end point, the last event of the prophecy, is at year 487 and a half. It is described in verse 27, In the midst of the week he shall be cut off and cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease as far as having any value before God. The Lord Jesus Christ confirmed the covenant himself and by his apostles with many for that last week. He, for three and a half years, preaching the covenant, instituting it at the Lord's Supper, and then the apostles perpetuating that supper after his crucifixion, fiction, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That's the 27th verse. When we go back to 20, the 25th verse, it says there are seven weeks, that's 49 years. There are 62 weeks, that's 434 years. And there's one week, that's seven years. Added together, that 70 times 7 or 490 
The first seven or 49 years are to get Jerusalem rebuilt because it says the streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. That's where the prophecies of Zechariah and Haggai were used to get Jerusalem rebuilt as a city and the temple foundation laid and built. After three score and two weeks, in verse 26, that means after 69 weeks. Why does it mean after 69 weeks? Because the seven weeks of years came in front of the 62. The seven weeks or 49 years were to rebuild Jerusalem. The 62 weeks were an intervening gap of time to Messiah the Prince. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word in the New Testament that means Messiah is Christ. So now that you think about that, Messiah is spoken of throughout the New Testament. He's going to be cut off, but not for himself. He's going to be cut off for you and me. He's going to die to pay for our sins. And the people of the prince that shall come, that's Titus, who when he came with the legions of Rome, was not the Caesar. He was the son of the Caesar. He was a prince. They destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Didn't he pull that temple down stone by stone? Titus did in 70 A.D. And so we have this prophecy that there's a 70-week prophecy and the point in the midst of the 70th week, three and a half years into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it took 69 weeks to get to Messiah the Prince. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, who issued that commandment? Who was God's servant? Who said, the Lord God of heaven hath raised me up and given me all kingdoms, that I should say his people should go back and rebuild his house and build his city? Cyrus the Persian. That's the commandment. That started the time frame running. So that the Jews had a specific time frame that started with the decree of Cyrus in 456 B.C. And if you take 456 B.C. and add to it 34 A.D., you've got 490 years because in 30 A.D., in the midst of the 70th week, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross of Calvary and put an end to animal sacrifices and the Moses system of righteousness. For the overspreading of abominations, that's the wickedness of the Jews. He, he consumed the nation and his consumption of the nation was to make it desolate, and that had been determined, and it was poured upon the desolate. The end of the war, verse 26, shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. The horrible things that went on in the destruction of Jerusalem are therein described. I have preached this before. I will preach it again. It will not be, be it will not be too long until I preach through Daniel again. This is very simply understood, has always been simply understood by God's saints until the last 150 years when they started going to Bible colleges more frequently so that they could get de-educated from the knowledge of God's Word. Now they take this all and jam it out into the future that has not yet come. The 70 weeks prophecy is a joke. They say 69 weeks ran, and then there's been an indeterminate period of 2,000 years already, and then the 70th week is going to be sometime in the future. There is no seven-year tribulation taught anywhere in the Bible, even by the greatest resting of Scripture, except right here by taking the 70th week and removing it from its prophecy. But now how could Daniel know and understand anything unless this prophecy was connected? What kind of a God, angel, and Savior do you think you have that would say 70 weeks are determined, but have an indeterminate period of time between week 69 and week 70? This is a 490-year prophecy, and it was fulfilled. Messiah was cut off. And when was he cut off? In the midst of the week. 
What week? The 70th. So we know that the 70th started before the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. When did it start? When Messiah was announced to Israel at his baptism, which is identified in this chapter. And now we go. And brethren, I'm going to be so short. I don't want you to be frustrated, but we want to sing more because I want to give you opportunity to glorify the Lord. I get to study and I get to do this right now, but I want you to have the opportunity to sing. Listen, I could go for a long, long time on this. If you think that I'm, I don't have material, you are so wrong. I have reworked my material on Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I could go from now until midnight and not take a breath. But that is not my purpose. I want to give you the opportunity to see how many of you really want to lift up your hearts and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Lord's Supper before us. This passage talks about the Lord's Supper three times in the 24th verse. We just had preaching on Romans chapter 11, and three times in Daniel 9.24, the Jews are going to be addressed in a not-so-pretty way. We've got them both. It's the perfect passage for today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. That's the Jews and Jerusalem. To finish the transgression is the first thing we want to notice. To finish the transgression. Israel finished her great transgression and rebellion against God and filled up her sins unto the full measure of the wickedness of that nation by killing God's Messiah, His only begotten Son. You should hardly need an explanation after me explaining Matthew 21 to you earlier today in which He sent His servants and they killed some and they stoned some and He sent more servants. Then He sent His Son and when they killed His Son, then that's that's the straw that broke the camel's back, but it wasn't a straw and it wasn't a camel. It was an act of rebellion and wickedness the world had never seen. It was crucifying the just and holy one, the Messiah of God, and God came in vengeance on that nation as this passage describes. To finish the transgression, the transgression is a singular transgression. The nation's rebellion against God. Of course, it is a collective noun in the sense of its many different acts of rebellion and wickedness against God, but it filled up its transgression, it finished its rebellion in the culminating event of killing God's Son. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, God told Abraham, your seed is going to have to wander around for 400 years because the wicked, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Abraham, but your seed is going to have to go down to Egypt and for 400 years wait around because I've got to wait around until the Amorites get bad enough so that when you come back into this land of Canaan, we can go ahead and kill every man, woman, and child and beast because they are so wicked that if you don't do it by that time, the land will spew them out. Are you familiar with all that? The, the, the iniquity is not yet full. So the transgression had not yet reached its point to where the transgression was finished. The, the transgression against God was finished by the Jewish nation, not when they killed prophets, but when they killed the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at, hold your hand at Daniel chapter 9, but look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Lord, I hate making haste. He that hasteth with his feet sinneth. I do not want to sin in going too fast over this passage, but thou knowest my intentions today. Help me. 
1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. This was a Gentile church in Thessalonica, which was part of Macedonia of Greece. I'm in the middle of verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Speaking of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. See, that's Matthew 21. And have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. Notice the terminology here. To fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. What uttermost? Consummation and desolation of the nation that we had in Daniel chapter 9. Why? Because they killed the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was bringing up their sins to fill up their sins always. Back up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. You know, I could just give you the sense of these verses, but I want to show you a couple of verses, and I hope that some of you will have them stick in your memories to be able to review and to be able to present to others when you think about the expression to finish the transgression. Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And then he goes on to describe that he is going to send prophets, apostles, and evangelists, and preachers and teachers to them, and they're going to kill them, and they're going to crucify them and scourge them in their synagogues and persecute them, that all the righteous blood shed from the first martyr in the Bible, Abel, to the last martyr in the Bible, Zechariah, according to the book of Chronicles, can be brought upon that generation. Even so shall, verse 36, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. That was finishing their transgression, killing the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. He doesn't even mention himself in here, in his humility. But we all understand from Matthew 21 that that was their greatest crime. So when it says in Daniel 9.24 that 70 weeks are determined upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem, and the 70th week is in the middle of it, Jesus died. This period of time of 487 years, things were happening. And one of the things was they finished their transgression. They finally committed the final sin that had no remedy. Do you know that there are places in your Bible where it says there was no remedy? There could be no repentance. It was over. They finished the transgression. They killed the Lord of glory. That happened. Oh, Lord. And we love Him. They, it was to them. He came to them. He came unto His own. And His own received Him not. John 1.11 They didn't want the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just sang, Jesus is all I want. Do you know what a difference God has made in your life? And we want to sing about it in a minute. Number two, to make an end of sins. That first point was about Israel. Did you see God's going to turn away from Israel? Destroy their temple, destroy their city, and leave them. But now the second one, to make an end of sins. An end of sins was made 
70 weeks of years after Daniel's prophecy by the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ for all the sins of his people. Does it say in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, he made an end of sins. Does the Bible say that Jesus Christ, by the sacrifice of himself once for all, paid for all sins? Does the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more? Is that an end of sins? Does the Bible say who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Does the Bible say this and so much more? Does the Bible say it is finished about the Lord Jesus Christ? He put an end to sins, plural. This is two different things in the second in the second clause here that we're dealing with. The second event and the first event. The first event is they finished their transgression against God and brought upon themselves all the judgment that they deserved and that they received with the final destruction of that city and their nation. But then, to make an end of sins, the Lord Jesus Christ died because He was cut off, but not for Himself. He was cut off for you and me. Was He made to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? There are so many verses that could be brought forward. We could preach six messages and it would be the proper proportion to preach six messages, one for each of these six clauses. But I want all of them in your minds right now. These middle three, two, three, and four are all related, but they're all different. To put an end to sin, the sin problem of the first Adam was put to death by the second Adam who came and obeyed for us and died on the cross to put away those sins. But then we needed to be reconciled to God. And so we read here that the third event that was to take place is to make reconciliation for iniquity. The sin problem put away is one thing. We're no longer legally condemned before God. But reconciliation is a relational matter. It's not so much legal, it's relational. And that is God is separated from man because of iniquity. And so we need to be reconciled. Was reconciliation made by the Lord Jesus Christ? There was one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And all things are of God. Amen they are who hath reconciled us to himself. This is 2 Corinthians 5.18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. The gospel comes to tell us that God's at peace with us. We should be at peace with God and not think that we have to go out and earn any more righteousness or put iniquity or sin away because God put it all away through Jesus Christ. Legal and practical reconciliation are in these three verses, in each of these three, in each of the three verses. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by putting forth Jesus Christ as a payment for our iniquity, and he sends the gospel to tell us about it. But it was one of the things determined upon the Jews and their holy city. And so the reconciler came, the mediator came, the Lord Jesus Christ, and reconciled us to God. Romans 5.10 puts it this way, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son, much more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So there's a difference. An end of sins. The sin issue is gone. No one can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Their sins and iniquities will remember no more. But then, from the standpoint of a relationship with God, we are reconciled to Him. And then, what do we want for eternity that can never be taken away from us? To bring in everlasting righteousness. Not only to pay for our sins, not only to reconcile us to God, but also to put us in His righteousness forever. So we come to event number four to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jesus Christ the righteous justified us by His death and resurrection so that we are viewed by God as free from sins and standing forever before God in Messiah's perfect righteousness. Let me quote again 2 Corinthians 5.21 which we already heard in a prayer earlier this morning which blessed my heart then and I hope that some of you can remember that. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That is what God did in bringing in everlasting righteousness. He clothed us in Christ's righteousness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. O Lord, how love we Thy law! 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It has spoken of election from verse 26 down through verse 29, that no flesh should glory in His presence, because God's chosen the foolish and poor and base things of this world to confound the mighty things. But look at verse 30. But of Him. Did 2 Corinthians 5 say all things are of God? So when this says, but of Him, who are we speaking about? God. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. How do you ever get in Christ Jesus in the legal way that counts? God places you in Christ Jesus according to His everlasting covenant. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God putting us in the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the everlasting righteousness and sanctification and redemption and wisdom that we so desperately need to stand in His presence. Look at Romans chapter 5, back a few pages. Romans chapter 5, where Paul just repeats about justification and righteousness over and over. Verse 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. Romans 5, 16. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. There's justification once. Now verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. That's twice. Now verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one that is Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, that is justification of eternal life, that is everlasting righteousness. Three times. Next verse. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 
That's the fourth time. Let's keep reading. Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He brought in everlasting righteousness. The sins were put away. He remembers them no more. We are reconciled because we have received the atonement through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been put at one again. And everlasting righteousness has been brought in. We are clothed with the righteousness of saints. As it's described in the book of Revelation, we will stand before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the holy angels for eternity, clothed in everlasting righteousness. Six things are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. But the majority of the nation did not receive them. Isn't that horrible? And so look what he did to them. He sealed up the vision and prophecy, number five. To seal up the vision and prophecy, quickly turn with me while you're holding Daniel 9. If you need to hold it, hopefully you've already memorized the verse. Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, what does it mean to seal up the vision and prophecy? All kinds of explanations are given. We just want the Holy Spirit's explanation. And so we compare Scripture with Scripture and we find out that it's very easy to understand. Now we're reading about something in Romans 11. I've already told you that Isaiah 6 is quoted six times in the New Testament. You read Acts 28 last night where the apostle said, You Jews, I hope that you'll remember that there was a warning given that blinding is coming. So you should know, but let's just go look at some Bible verses. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Does that sound like a cross-reference? Bind up the law and bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples? Well, what is the context here? Well, the preaching to them was a problem. Verse 14, he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling. This is verse 14, stone of stumbling, rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. That doesn't mean elect and non-elect. That means the ten tribes and the two tribes. For a jinn and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And among, and many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Does that sound like people understanding God's word and his testimony and his law? No. How about verse 17? And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. He's hiding his face. Does that sound like the prophecies are open and being fulfilled and they're understanding them and seeing their confirming fulfillments? Or does it sound like they don't understand what's written because it's a closed up, sealed up book? Yes, the latter is true. Verse 18, Behold, I and the children the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so on and so forth there in Isaiah 6. Look at Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Is that a Bible rule of interpretation? That is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, and it refers to the words used by the Holy Ghost. Isaiah 29 and verse 11, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee, and he saith, 
I cannot, for it is sealed. A sealed book can't be read because it can't be opened. It has a seal upon it that it's not supposed to be opened and read. And the verse 12, And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this. I pray that he saith, I'm not learned. If I were to open it anyway, I couldn't read it because I don't know how to read. And so we have another cross-reference, and I could multiply these, and I don't have time to multiply them, but they can be multiplied all the way to the last book of the, all the way the last chapter of the Bible, that to seal up something is to close it up from understanding. I can't go any further than that right now. And so what, what is this saying when it says that six, that, that 70 weeks are determined upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem to seal up the vision and prophecy? He's going to shut their eyes, close up their ears, harden their hearts so that they won't believe the gospel and that all of this will come to pass. And this is a judicial blinding upon that nation that they fully deserve for all that they did in what they did to the servants that God sent to them, rising up early many times over and over again, warning them to repent of their wickedness. Now, brethren, we are preaching things that are not generally known in other churches. For the most part today, nobody preaches a passage like this and gives any detailed explanation of it. For the most, you know, Joel and Benny and these, these mega churches around here don't preach passages of scripture like this. But to the churches that do preach these passages, they are following Jewish fables and they jam this stuff out into the future. It's a disgrace. It's blasphemy. They can't even figure out how to start it. They start this prophecy with a decree given by Artaxerxes that was nothing in comparison to God's servant Cyrus. They'll seal, God will seal it up. And you know, there's so many prophecies that we've already referred to. Yeah, the one from Isaiah 6. Go, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, go and make the heart of this people fat. Do you remember that negative ordination service? When God ordained Isaiah to go to his own people that they're not going to hear and I don't want to convert them and I don't want to heal them. And, the Lord, and, and Isaiah says, Lord, how long? Till I destroy it. I'm going to keep it up perpetually until they're wiped out as a nation. We come to the seventh one, and to anoint the sixth one, and to anoint the most holy, the sixth event, to anoint the most holy. It is amazing to me that people will run off and say, well, that must be a place to anoint the most holy place. And so they have Jesus anointing the second temple of Zerubbabel during his lifetime. They have Jesus anointing the church because that's the temple of God and could be called a holy place. They have Jesus anointing heaven when he goes there after his ascension because that's a holy place. But I'll tell you something, heaven doesn't need any anointing. Right. And it's just, it's just amazing to read. Do you, can you understand who the... Oh, I gave that away. What the most holy might be? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Does the Bible ever say in any place that God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost? who went about doing good? Does the Bible ever say that? Does the Bible say He was given the Holy Ghost without measure? Does the Bible say He was given the Holy Ghost above His brethren? Does the Bible call Him the Anointed One of God? Does Psalm 2 say that yet my anointed sits on the throne of Zion? Yes, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Does the Bible refer to the Holy Child Jesus in Acts chapter 4? Is He called the Holy One in the book of Acts in other places? 
Oh, Lord, it's so simple. We thank you. God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Ghost at His baptism. When John declared Him to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ of God, before entering upon His public ministry as the King and Priest of God, He was consecrated and anointed by Almighty God. Lord, we thank You. By seeing though that end, the list of six, it points us into verse 25. And what is the first object that we, that we come to in verse 25? Messiah the Prince. Know therefore and understand. Know therefore and understand from these six things I've given you that from the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto this is the one, Messiah the Prince. He's the most holy. Did God anoint the Lord Jesus Christ to be the most holy and to be His Christ? To be His Messiah? Absolutely. Repeated over and over again. Psalm 45, 7, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, puts it this way. Psalm 45 and verse 7. Thou hatest righteousness, speaking of Jesus Christ. Thou lovest righteousness. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Is that hard for us to understand? The greatest gift, the greatest thing God ever did for Israel was sending them the son of David he had prophesied, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, Shiloh, to whom the gathering of the people would be. To anoint the most holy. Didn't Jesus stand up in the synagogue in Nazareth? And read Isaiah 61, the first three verses. The Lord God hath anointed me to preach the gospel. Remember? The Bible's full of it. This is not difficult. And so God sent His Son to the nation and they rejected Him. And for the overspreading of abominations and for them killing the Son of God, a war was determined and desolations from that war and it came in like a flood and they overwhelmed the city of Jerusalem and pulled a plow across the top of Mount Zion. But brethren, he confirmed the covenant with many for one week, and he turned and redirected the preaching to come to us Gentiles. And so, while this is directed to thy holy people and thy holy city, that holy people and that holy city was no longer the holy people and the holy city. It was redirected to us Gentiles. The Lord Jesus Christ is ours. Everlasting righteousness is ours. The vision, the prophecy are all opened up to us. We have New Testament scriptures that explain everything about the Old Testament. We understand so much. We've Reconciliation has been made for iniquity so that we are reconciled to God our Father. There's been an end put to sins. Let us make sure there's no transgression in our life that there would ever be a time of no remedy for us individually. Somebody might say, well, why does... Why does anoint the most holy come last when in some respects it's really the first one in time? I have two answers for you. Really three, but one. When I go to 1 Timothy 3.16, which is a passage just like this in the New Testament that lists six things, it lists one of the preeminent ones last, even though it was not last in order. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. 
He was received up in glory long before he was preached to the Gentiles. He was received up in glory long before believed on in the world. Because that's a crowning jewel in the la- in that list of six in 1 Timothy 3.16. And here it's a crowning jewel to anoint the most holy. Because the greatest thing that ever happened to Israel, the greatest riches of the Gentiles, are to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then these six point us right into verse 25 where he is identified by name. Now look at verse 27 and we close. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. He did it personally, himself, before his crucifixion. He did it by his apostles after his crucifixion. And in the midst of the week, when he was crucified, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease by opening up the Holy of Holies in the temple, by pulling that, tearing that veil from top to bottom and opening up the way into God. There was no longer any animal sacrifices necessary to go in to the presence of God. And then the desolation that comes. Jesus confirmed the covenant with many for one week. In just a few minutes, we are going to use these words. When we take up the cup of wine, we are going to quote the Lord Jesus Christ who delivered this to the Apostle Paul to deliver it to us Gentiles. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. He confirmed the covenant with many verbally by himself, verbally by his apostles, including Paul. And he did it himself on the cross of Calvary when by himself he purged us from our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. If you want more from Daniel chapter 9, ask for it. If you want more from Daniel 9, go and look at the outlines on our website, meditate on it, get your questions up, send them to me. I'm not trying to deprive you. I wanted to make this brief as possible, and I want you to have an opportunity to show Jesus Christ, if you are anything like David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, or Josiah. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.